my father's nickname for me was GFN as one of them. One of them was Bonus, which is a loving one. And the other one was GFN, which is good for nothing. And it was meant to be sort of a term to, you know, to remind us that just that we could become nothing at any point. And I think I felt ashamed when I would be called that and I would be, I'd feel ashamed when I wouldn't succeed because for me that meant the potential for not surviving. And so my whole life, I think, early in my childhood was about not shaming myself and being as achievement focused as possible. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Mickey Agrawal. If you've ever heard of Thinks, the period underwear company, or happen to use a tushy, the popular mass market bidet attachment, you have Mickey to thank for that. Mickey co-founded Thinks in 2013 with her sister Rada, as well as Antonia Dunbar, and then she founded Tushy in 2015 with co-founder Justin Allen. Both of those companies are now profitable, with each being valued at well over $100 million. Mickey is, as she says herself, a true disruptor. With every business she started, from her gluten-free, farm-to-table pizza restaurant Wild, to her current company Tushy, Mickey goes against the grain, challenging societal norms and changing how people talk about taboo topics. In fact, you might say that Mickey is in the business of taboo. But this isn't necessarily what she set out to do at the start of her career. In the beginning, Mickey was driven by a deep insecurity. While she is known for shining a light on ideas or parts of life that many consider shameful, she, in fact, was largely motivated by her own fear of shame and need for approval. Mickey told me how she struggled with this fear of shame for years and how she eventually learned to overcome it. Mickey Agrawal, first of all, it's it's awesome to see you um, to, and to talk to you for the first time in what feels like two years, which I think it is. I know. You have built businesses around behaviors that people have felt shameful about based on society standards. Before we talk about those businesses, I want to hear about you. When have you felt most shameful in your life? Um, that's a great question. I think for me, being the you know first generation of immigrant parents, where achievement meant survival, <laughs> I think for my parents too, my father came here with $5 in his pocket from India. My mom came to America from Japan without speaking any English. And I think the only way to really make it is achieving. And if I didn't achieve, I was shamed <laughs> and not like on purpose, but that was a form of motivation. My father's nickname for me was GFN as one of them. One of them was bonus, which is a loving one. And the other one was GFN, which is good for nothing. And it was meant to be sort of a term to, you know, to remind us that, that my sister and I, my twin sister, and I, when I, when I, when I say us, it's always my twin sister and me. Um, just that we could become nothing at any point. And, and it's on us to just really push ourselves. And I think I felt ashamed when I would be called that. And I would be, I'd feel ashamed when I wouldn't succeed because for me, that meant the potential for not surviving. 
And I think that's kind of what I learned. And so my whole life, I think early in my childhood was about not shaming myself and being as achievement focused as possible. And that of course posed a lot of problems. I can see so many ways that would serve you, right? And has served you in your life and with everything you've built. But I could also imagine that amount of pressure and expectation. There could be difficulties with that. Um, I want to understand kind of where, did it provide some kind of like achy things you had to think through or work through? I mean, of course. I think up until literally recently where I did the Hoffman process and I've done a ton, I've done over the last eight years, a ton of coaching and kind of somatic therapy around this kind of concept of achievement-based love. If I don't achieve, then I don't get love. So for me, I didn't believe that I was lovable unless I achieved. And so it's like, there's no way, like, unless I'm the best at what I'm doing, then people will like me and love me. And otherwise they won't like me and love me. And I'll be like outcast and not accepted or loved. And I think that was, it's a very human feeling to kind of feel like you have to constantly, it's not just like, okay, I did one thing, but now I'm loved. It's like, it's a nonstop continuous thing that has to happen over and over and over again. And I think that's like, it's exhausting. It's really interesting. You know, like you said that you felt like you needed to achieve in order to feel love. And I, I feel like this is, like you said, a pretty common thing that high achievers feel where there's some need for external validation. What I'm most interested in is, you know, you've now built many businesses, many successful businesses. Did you feel a sense of success and love when you reached a point of being really successful with these businesses? I mean, I don't think it was achieving the success of the businesses. I think it was in doing a lot of the self-love work, you know? And I think like if I had not achieved those success and still did the self-love work, I would be ahead of if I did, if I succeeded and didn't do the self-love work. And so I think, you know, I feel very blessed when so many wild things happened and the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I think that achievement mentality kept me putting one foot in front of the other. And so I'm deeply grateful for it. But I think if I had kept that going, it could have probably killed me from a health perspective because of just pushing past my boundaries of physical and emotional well-being. It's so funny. I'm reading this book by Will Smith right now called Will. I don't know if you've read it. I just read it. And that's what I was thinking about and asking you that question. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And he he talks about this, that story of that, the, the parable of the raft parable. I remember that. And, and basically, you know, he, he basically shares the story where, you know, this guy has to cross the river in order to live and build himself this raft to basically get, a, get across the river. And he, you know, lives and he's so proud of himself. He's like, I built this raft and I lived. But then he was like, I want to have to take this raft and I'll carry it on my head through a dense forest. And now the raft is getting caught in trees because the forest is dense. So he has, he has this like conundrum. I have to like let this raft go, but this raft just saved his life. But if you don't let it go, then you're, you're going to die. <laughs> and so there's that where I didn't realize for the longest time that, that I was still holding on to the raft in, in my own, in my own life where it's like, I have to keep going. Even if I sold my first company, huge exit, it was amazing. I was still holding on to the raft. And I think finally it's like the work, the weekly work with my coach and my somatic therapist doing this deep, deeper work 
has led me to be like, let go of the wrath. Like you're safe. You don't have to do it that way anymore. So I think I've had to learn in such a deep way how I don't need to be like constantly like guard up, ready to fight back or ready to constantly prove, 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 prove for love. I love Mickey's interpretation of the raft parable here. For me, when I first read this story, the raft represented the deeply held narratives that have such a big impact on how we behave in our lives, whether or not we're conscious of those narratives. And while it can be a beautiful, beneficial thing, it can also come with immense trade-offs. And determining when to let go of our rafts, aka our long-held beliefs, can be incredibly difficult. For Mickey, her raft was the belief that the only way to earn love was to succeed professionally. And this story she told herself played out in her early days of entrepreneurship. For example, when she began raising money for her businesses. I think I felt so ashamed when I would get the rejection, you know? And it just like, it, it was just like such a blow because I'm so achievement-based my whole life, like up until starting a business was sort of like you could, if you just did the work and put your head down, you graduate from college, you can do well, you can get a great job, you can, but then when it comes to fundraising, it's so based on people's opinions, their experience, what their portfolio, like, you know, actually invests in and what their strategy is. And, but yet, you know, in the very beginning, you kind of spray and pray, you just kind of meet everyone you can and you pitch everyone you can. And then as rejections start coming in, it's just like, it was really hard. I think it's the sa- it was the same way for me when hiring or uh, like not as much firing, but having like, you know, employees that I've nurtured over time move on to get another bigger job or start their own companies. There was that deeper feeling of like, oh, you don't love me anymore. You know, things like that, where I've had to learn that it's not about me. It's about their own stuff, their own strategy, their own whatever they're doing in their life, it's their dream or it's whatever it is. It has nothing to do with me, but I internalized. I was very porous. And I think I would just let energies get to me. And I think that all came from that sort of that deeper wound of, of wanting to be loved. As a CEO, unfortunately or fortunately, you have to deal with rejection all the time, whether it's feeling rejected by the people that decide not to work for your business or the people you have to fire or investors that say, uh, no, we don't think you're gonna build as big of a business as you think you are. So like, as related to both your career and your personal life, how did you navigate the depth of emotion that you felt from rejection because of your deep-rooted need to feel loved? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, super immature, super just like, Wah, wah, you know, and like not having the tools in the beginning to just kind of like feel the contraction, kind of like sit with it, allow it to be there, totally give it permission to be there. Because we also, I also didn't feel like I had the permission to feel shame or hurt. So I would, it would come out in anger. Anger was so much more accepted in society, especially in the business world. Whereas feeling shame or hurt or sadness or tearful is just not accepted, especially trying to be a woman in this society. And I never thought of myself as that anyways, but just from the example of being in business, it's like strong, you know, like angry if you need to be, but otherwise just straight and narrow, go for it and have no fear, like that kind of attitude. 
And I kind of adopted it falsely in the beginning, just being like, I'm fine, you know? And, and then it would leak out in little spurts of anger or, you know, in, in ways that were, were leaking out from the core of my hurt. And so I think over the last now nearly like nine years, I've seen someone at least a week where I, a coach, you know, person that can help kind of purge the feelings inside of me and they can actually come out in an immature way and they can come out in messy and just sort of like unconscious. And then we get to kind of sit with it and sift through it and look at it and just be like, what's real? What's not? What's, what's coming from your negative love patterns from your parents? Like what's, you know, and what's the root of it? And it's like, ultimately the root always kept coming back to wanting to be loved. Like that is just like, I think everyone's deepest root. And it's like, the, it's the core. You know, that resonates with me so much because for the longest time, I think what, especially in the early days of building Morning Brew, I was a really shitty manager. And I think the reason was because I was such a people pleaser. Um, and I yeah. think the biggest, you know, challenge that people pleasers face is you don't always communicate kind of the hard but necessary truths in a respectful way because you're afraid of hurting others and then not feeling loved. And so I would, I, I'm interested in, I've seen you talk about kind of your decision to, even within Tushy, right? I believe you're the chief creative officer, not the CEO. Like talk about your decision to not be in a day-to-day -day management role and why you made that decision. Yeah, I think because of the learning that I had that I am a deeply empathetic person. I'm an empath at heart. And I also like, I'm kind of a literally split down the middle between my mom and my dad, probably a little bit more like my dad than my mom. My mom is a total loving people pleaser, give you the shirt off my back, whatever you want. Like I'll give you anything. And my dad is like stern, like Indian, like get the job done, make it happen. Don't fail at any cost, you know, and just like, like put your head down and work kind of mentality. And so I feel like one of the challenges in the beginning earlier on was I would be a whiplash from people pleasing to getting shit done. And so I think from an employee perspective, that was hard to manage, you know, up because I would people please. And then I would get like, you know, if I wasn't getting, you know, the job done, then my stern dad would come out, but then it would be a bit too far this way versus like, so then it, it just, it'd be like a whiplash a little bit, you know? And so what I realized about myself is that I'm sort of a creative explosion of ideas and sort of just, you know, campaigns and constantly just drinking in the world around me and just finding really cool ways to kind of express a business an idea, a campaign, a thing. But when it comes to really disseminating down in a just constantly level way, constant, consistent, that just that's just not me. And like, in fact, like I'm actually much better suited to be the cheerleader and not have to be the person to have to like lay down the law. Cause I would be probably too, I would like skew too much like my dad. So finding somebody who has executive experience. So I brought in Jason Ojalvo, you know, Amazon executive of 10 years, really amazing guy, just a good family man who has executive experience, the pertinent experience has worked in stars before, has built things before, and he's just level-headed. <laughs> and then my co-founder and COO, Justin, also chill AF. You know, like you can't, doesn't matter if the sky's falling, like his expression wouldn't change. 
and they admire me for my explosion of energy and I admire them for their even keeledness. So when it comes to like running the team from a day to day, they run the team day to day. Well, I run the creative department of my team every day. But when it comes to, you know, every day, the way I think about it now is zone of genius model. It's like, what is my zone of genius? What is your zone of genius? Just because I founded the company, it doesn't mean I need to be the CEO for ego purposes. And for me, it's like the more I'm in my zone of genius and the more I put other people in their zones of genius, the better our company does. And if I owe most of the company or big, you know, like the majority of the business, then I get to actually take those proceeds and invest in things that I care about. I admire Mickey so much for having the self-awareness to step back from being CEO of Tushy. I can speak from my own experience of doing this at Morning Brew, and I can safely say it was not easy at all. I had this long-held belief that to be a successful founder, it also meant leading the company you created forever. My role models were the people who founded companies, were CEOs of said companies for 20 years, and eventually took their companies public. Think Elon Musk or Sarah Blakely. Could I change this narrative, this deeply seated belief for myself? Again, if I wanted to, I had to let go of my raft. I also love Mickey's idea of the zone of genius model. Instead of doing what she believed she should be doing, running the company she founded as its CEO, she realized she'd be better serving herself and everyone else as its chief creative officer instead. There's more to come in my conversation with Mickey, but first we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear how Mickey has embraced the setbacks she's faced in starting her controversial companies and has used overcoming those setbacks to her advantage. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I want to talk for a second about some of these personal challenges that you've faced that have led to your businesses? Because I think the really interesting thing about our conversation right now is imposters is all about large personal challenges that world-class performers have faced in order to navigate these challenges while excelling in their career. And I feel like that defines you to a T, that every business you have founded has come out of a pretty significant personal challenge. So what I'd love for you to do is share the three questions you ask yourself whenever you create a new business, and then talk about the challenge that you experience with each business that you founded. So the three questions I always ask myself, this is in my book, Do Cool Shit, is the first question is what sucks in my world? So it always has to start with me. Like I always feel like it's so much more fun to solve a, a problem that I'm facing than just an esoteric problem. So what sucks in my world? The second question is, does it suck for a lot of people? Because if it just sucks for me and I'm this diva, then it's not a business opportunity. But if it sucks for a lot of people, then, ooh, there's an opportunity here. And then the third question is, can I be passionate about this issue cause or community for a really long time? So, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into sort of like how each one of these literally solved major problems in my life and in the lives of millions of people and have created 
nine figure businesses, you know? And I think there's, there's something really powerful about that, about, wait, I can solve my own problem. Like every single month I wear my underwear and every single day I use my bidet. So the first one is what sucks in my world. So the first business I started was started with a stomach ache. Um, I had this really horrible stomach ache every time I came home and eating food outside in New York city. And I was working in film production and, you know, there's these tables on sets, you know, they're called craft service tables where you just get free food and you could just snack on it all day long. And at the time I still had student loan debt and I was still like living paycheck to paycheck. And so I just was like free food. That's my meals. And I would just eat that food all day. It would be like pizza and pigs in the blanket and just smarty, like, like M&M, just like crap basically. And I would just come home and my stomach would just be raging at me. And so finally one day I was like, all right, what the heck is going on? And I was just very unaware. Even if I knew I grew up with healthy food around me, but back then it's 2003, 2004, no one was really talking about organic farm table, gluten-free or local seasonal. All those terms are still just not in the zeitgeist. And, you know, I, the stomach ache was really what led me to start my first business, which is, you know, New York city's first gluten-free farm table pizza concept called wild. It was called slice. And now it's been rebranded to wild. Like we're going into our 18th year in business. It's crazy. It makes me feel so hundred. <laughs> um, and then the second business, what sucks in my world was, you know, I would run from one restaurant to another. I'd, I'd kind of saved up enough money in my coffers to open up a second restaurant. And so I would ride my bicycle from one restaurant to another in that process of just running from one restaurant to another, I would just forget to change my tampon and pad. I would have these accidents on my period. You know, my older sister's a surgeon and all of her underwear had stains in it because in the middle of an operation, you can't just be like, face, stay open while I go change my tampon. You know, you, 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 doesn't, you just bleed. And so in any situation as a woman, if you're a dancer on stage, if you're sitting in traffic, you're taking a test, if you're going on a first date, whatever, like that is a true interruption. And so it kind of sort of propelled the idea for, for and sparked the idea for starting Thinks, which is the period proof underwear company that my, my sister, myself and our friend Antonia started. And then the third sort of, you know, what sucks in my world really came from going through all this of pushing myself past my boundaries, having shot thyroid, adrenals, everything, and, and developing an extreme hyperthyroid condition of which one of the awful side effects is pooping up to eight times a day. And, um, literally I would, I got down to a hundred pounds. It was terrifying. And so that's what propelled the idea to start Tushy, which was pooping up to eight times a day led to me having a super raw chapped, butt. I had to jump in the shower every single time I went to the bathroom because by that time it was so raw. And I then thought about everyone with IBS issues who don't have clean poops, people who have thyroid issues, people who have any GI issues. If you have chronic UTIs, hemorrhoids, fissures, itching, like if you're pregnant or post-pregnant and you have hemorrhoids, I mean, there's just, if you literally have mobility issues, if you're elderly, if you, I mean, if you just want to go on a date and want to feel clean, like, you know, and so it led me to starting Tushy, the modern bidet that, you know, that washes your butt clean after you poop. <laughs> It's amazing for so many reasons. One is because these businesses were just so ripe for opportunity to help people because naturally taboo topics, people are afraid to to just take on. And then on one side, you know, what I think is just part of your brilliance is there's such an opportunity to make big splashes by bringing fun and love and untabooing the taboo and like truly like hugging it and embracing it. 
But on the other side, when it comes to, especially like raising money from investors, educating people, I can imagine that societally deemed shameful things or taboo topics can be met with a lot of friction. Talk about just some of the friction you faced with any of these taboo businesses. I mean, across the board, I, I mean, it started by just getting, God, you just want attention. You just want to talk about these things. You just want attention. And it just like, do you poop? Do you have, you know, a period if you're a woman or like have a, a lady in your life who has a period? I mean, like, no, I don't want attention. I'm just calling out the fact that we can't talk about these things in a society that was invented by people no different than you or me. Like we're deeming society as the one who decides what we can and cannot talk about, but it was literally society is people. And so why are we abiding by some imaginary rules that don't make any sense to us anymore? And not only that, but it's killing our planet. It's hurting our health and hygiene. It's not supporting progress and it's not supporting our comfort. And luckily I grew up you know, being an immigrant's daughter, so I can defend really well. <laughs> and I can like, you know, if someone was combative with me, I can get combative right back and just be like, okay, fine. You can walk around with a dirty ass. Fine. Happy. Go, good luck. <laughs> you know, but then eventually, you know, it was like, okay, how do we do this artfully? Like, how do we enroll someone into doing something and trying something that they just haven't tried before? And so what I learned the hard way is to meet people where they are. You know, in my book, Disruptor, I talk a lot about the idea of like how people really feel offended when you introduce something new into the world or into the life. But it's like, yeah, they're offended because they don't know anything. They don't, they don't know, like don't know about it. And so they, they reject it. And so instead of re getting offended by the rejection, let's meet, meet them where they are. So I, I basically, I share the story of John Mackey, you know, from, from Whole Foods, who's my son's godfather and who's literally the best high integrity person ever. And he's been such an incredible mentor and dear, dear friend of mine. But he talks, he talked a lot about how when he started Whole Foods, it was a vegan, no coffee, no sugar, you know, no meat, no, like it was so hardcore. And literally within a year, he almost shuttered his business. His business almost failed. And so he had to make a decision. He could either get offended that people were eating meat and sugar and coffee and ingesting all these bad things for the world and for you, or he can meet people where they are and offer the best in class version of those foods and slowly over time teach you on the way of the plant-based diet. He chose to meet people where they are. And guess what happened? Millions of people now have adopted a plant-based diet or much more of a plant-based diet thanks to that decision of meeting people where they are. And so I think one of the things that I learned in introducing something taboo to society is to meet people where they are. And what do people love? They love art. What do they love? They love cool, beautiful gadgets. What do they love? They love talking to their best friends. And so when I sort of developed a thesis first in my restaurants, this thesis really rang through to my next company. So the thesis really is a three-pronged thesis on how to shift culture in this world where, where people are pretty set in their ways. They don't want to be told what to do. And if you're, if you're not on their side, then they're against you. It's like, I'm sorry, no. So how do you meet people where they are, wherever they are? So, you know, like introducing, say, gluten-free farm table pizza, people were like, ew, probably tastes like cardboard. And so I remember standing outside my restaurant for two years, every single day for hours, just 
cutting a piece of pizza and just handing out pizza to customers every single day. And they would walk by and I would test different headlines, like A-B test. I would be like, organic pizza. And the people would walk by. I'd taste like gluten-free pizza. No one would stop. And then finally, a farm-to-table pizza or good like pizza that's delicious. And then they would come and try. Then I would be like, and by the way, do you know it's made out of these ingredients and it's gluten-free, farm-to-table, organic? And, uh, and they're like, really? Oh, my God. You know, so I was like, the more I was just like, yummy pizza, the more it actually worked in practice because that was like, got people that met people where they are and they came and then I got to educate them and they took the menu and then they called and became customers. You know, for things, it was really about like creating artful campaigns that looked like art in the subway. It looked like you're walking inside a gallery art exhibit, you know, in a subway. It felt like this. And people were like, what is this? And they would lean in and they're like, oh my God, they're talking about periods. But their first thing they did was lean in. So what happened was their heart cracked open just enough to be like, what is this? I'm a curiosity is now peaked. And so that's all we need is a, just a jam of heart open to like get in there to kind of share the knowledge. And then with Tushy, you know, it was the right accessible language. It's using humor to get people to be like, oh my God, this is so fun. Like what a fun brand that they're talking about poop, but cleaning your poop and they're saving trees, but it's doing it in a really fun, you know, engaging way. And so the three-pronged thesis that, that kind of like learn over time sounds pretty simple, but oftentimes they do get overlooked. The first is best-in-class product. My pizza had to be the tastiest. Our underwear had to be a product that people really wanted to wear. I wear mine every single month without fail. I love wearing. I wear it sometimes not on my period because it looks hot. You know, with Tushy, it's a product. It washes my butt clean. It's a precise stream. It looks cool. Like, it feels cool. Okay, so best-in-class product. Second prong is aesthetically beautiful across every touch point of your brand, you know, considered artful design across every touch point of my brand. And then the third prong is accessible, relatable language. And so like really writing like a texture best friend. I mean, you at Morning Brew know it better than anybody. I mean, you guys, you know, the, the ideas of can we take something that's complex and like, oh, I don't want to talk about it into something fun and relatable. Can we take something like finance and make it fun and, and make me laugh as I'm reading this shit? It's like, that is smart. That's cool, you know, and that's fun. And guess what? Now you guys are a super successful business because you met people where they are. You basically were relatable and accessible and it was disruptive. So it's the same, it's the same thing across the board. It works on every level. Mickey's creativity and marketing genius are qualities that I have long admired in her. It's impressive to hear her talk about how she found a way into people's hearts when it came to talking about periods and cleaning their own butts in order to get these businesses off the ground. But it wasn't a smooth process at all. Here, for example, how she initially wasn't even allowed to post her company's ads in New York City subway stations. So with Thinks, it was, they banned our ads in the subway because they said we couldn't say the word period because what would, what would nine-year-old boys think? And we're like, yeah, that's where they came. That's, that blood was used to make them. <laughs> but that was one of the things the MTA people said to us. And we were like, okay, well, let's go. Like, if you don't put these in the ads, we're going to go to press. And they called our bluff and it was a whole thing. And luckily I had like, one friend who worked at like, you know, a couple of publications and an article was published and that article went viral internationally and is really what put us on the map. And it was such a powerful showing of taking something that could have been like, you know, lemon and actually squeezing the juice out of it and creating lemonade with it. And that was like an example of that. And that actually 
is the case in every hardship in life. (laughs) That was such a visible and visceral example of that. A rejection, something that we would work so hard to do and was rejected from putting it on display and and turn it into some a campaign that truly changed the game for our business. And same thing with Tushy. They banned our ads still to this day in the subways because they said you can't it, it, bidets are like a sexual product. And we're like, no, it's like toilet paper. It's literally washing your butt clean after you poop. But they're like, no, you can't say it. It's a phallic product. And so we basically went to New York Daily News. They published an article. You know, this one necessarily didn't really go too viral, but it turns out that Saturday Night Live every single day goes through the New York dailies, all the different AM New York, New York Post, New York, New York Times, New York Magazine, New York Daily News, all the different publications to find funny stories. And Michael Che, the head writer for SNL, found this article in the New York Daily News saying that Tushy was banned from the subways, took this article, and he did a three-minute rant, and it's the funniest thing on why Tushy should have not been banned in the subways and how bidets should be ubiquitous everywhere. And it was the best thing that's ever happened for our company. And and we couldn't pay for that. We couldn't buy that. Like you couldn't make it up. Like it was it was the universe like throwing us a huge loaf of bread, being like you are on the right track. Keep going. Mickey had to double down on promoting her products. Simply because they were addressing topics that society wasn't ready to talk about yet. They were considered shameful. But because of this shame, they were also newsworthy. And the bottom line is, Mickey's products were helping people. And we'd be remiss not to mention Tushy's recent Super Bowl contest, which certainly made waves on the internet. In it, Tushy asked participants to send in photos of their actual post-Super Bowl poops for a chance to win $10,000. It certainly made a splash, no pun intended. But while Mickey's marketing tactics might seem like gimmicky ways to get attention, the truth is, Mickey is genuinely passionate about her businesses. Honestly, for me, it's just solving a problem in my life. Like, honestly, like every single one of them is truly answering what sucks in my world. Does it suck for a lot of people? Can I be passionate about this? Can I be passionate about food and food issues and feeding my own sensitive belly for the rest of my life? Can I be passionate about women's issues and liberating the shame, the oldest shame in the world. So can I be passionate about releasing that shame through innovation and disrupt through inventing a product? Absolutely. For the rest of, as long as it needs to be, could I, for the rest of my life, you know, like help save 15 million trees when they flush down the toilet, elevate the experience of humans instead of literally smearing shit around and sitting on fecal matter your whole life, like every single time you go to the bath. And for women, that fecal matter creeps up into your vaginal canal, creates chronic UTIs, bacterial vaginosis, like, you know, and for men, it creates like all kinds of itchy, but like itchy butt is a real thing that people go to the doctors for. Like, I mean, you have hair back there. There's like dingleberries. I mean, you know, so it's just, it's a real thing. So anyways, it was just truly to solve my own problem. And I knew, I knew that this is a problem because I, because it's a problem for everyone. And it's like, okay, so, th- so these are, these are shitty taboo problems that no one has solved for over a hundred years, truly both, both periods and poop in these taboo spaces. So actually it's smart to look at these spaces that haven't had innovation over a hundred years because anything you put out that's better is going to be like, thank you over time because the next best thing is toilet paper 
or, or paths, you know? And it's like, so I, I think if anyone's interested in starting a business to look at categories that actually aren't very popular, aren't very sexy, which is why now you're seeing, you know, like the first suitcase company went to unicorn. The first, you know, like, like laundromat company just got bought by private equity fund for nine figures. Like, basic shit, like shavers, like deodorant, like whatever company that's been basic, people are like, whoa, I can make this cool and make this disruptive in its own kind of way. For me, it's more than just making a product and like making money. For me, I love the creative challenge of really challenging societal stigma. Like I think that that keeps me going creatively. I think it's cool to see suitcases and all these things like that's cool, but like that wouldn't keep me excited for a long time. I think what keeps me excited is fighting the shame, is making people uncomfortable and asking themselves why. (laughs) It is remarkable to see how Mickey's ambition driven by her own fear of shame, has led her to boldly fight shame in broader society. And though she experienced constant pushback along the way, no one can argue that Mickey has succeeded. Thinks' post-money valuation topped $165 million in its last funding round. And as of February 2022, personal care products giant Kimberly Clark had acquired a majority stake in the company. Tushy, meanwhile, continues to grow, with multiple single-day sales of over a million dollars and an expanding product line. I think the biggest takeaways from Mickey Agarwal's story are these. One, know when to let go of your raft, those long-held beliefs that might have helped you in the past but are no longer serving you. Instead, find your zone of genius and figure out a way to orient your team or your business around that. Two, if you're struggling to get your message across, Meet people where they are. Don't force your idea down their throats if they're not ready to receive it. Instead, figure out where people are most comfortable at that moment and use that to find a different way into their hearts. And three, pursue an idea that you can be passionate about for a very long time. This will provide you with the motivation to keep going. Don't pursue something that you think is a good idea, but that you might tire of. Do something that you truly believe in. As Mickey would say, do cool shit. And now, before we go, it's time for some reflection of my own. Mickey mentioned several times during our conversation that she works with a coach to help her with certain personal and professional challenges. So I thought I'd share my experience with my own executive coach, which I first talked about on my other podcast, Founders Journal, back in March of 2021. If you want to hear a more detailed breakdown of that first session with my coach, Ryan, you can check out the episode called Meeting My Coach in the Founders Journal feed. Some people call it executive coaching. Others, like Mickey, simply call it coaching, which is actually what I call it as well. But what I think is most important to call out is that many people assume that professional coaching is only reserved for top-level executives. That couldn't be further from the truth. I believe that coaching is something that every professional should have access to and should seriously consider trying out at some point in the near future. What stood out to me in my first coaching session with Ryan is that he was an extremely active listener. Rather than jumping in with his own thoughts while I was talking, he'd sometimes take painfully long pauses before responding to me because he was taking in everything I had just said. 
Ryan talked with me for over an hour about several topics, including my codependency. That is, my people-pleasing nature that sometimes causes me to go along with things I might not agree with or don't want to do simply because I don't want to let another person down. He also helped me clarify what actual productivity looks like as a founder and CEO. While I was used to productivity being about doing, 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 what Ryan helped me realize is that often in leadership positions, productivity looks more like asking questions, reading, listening, and making decisions. Ryan also helped me work through how to be open-minded as a professional while also maintaining the strong opinions that helped me get to where I am today, as well as think about how to really spend my time most effectively. All in all, during this 80-minute first session that Ryan and I had, we got into some of the biggest questions, concerns, and insecurities that I have around my career, which obviously bleeds into my personal life as well. Now, it wasn't all answers, but to me, it set an amazing foundation for exploring some of the things that will ultimately, when I do find the answers, make me most fulfilled and most successful in my career and life in general. And clearly having a resource like this has helped Mickey a ton professionally as well. I've said it in the past, and I'm gonna keep saying it, coaching can benefit literally every professional. Whether it comes in the form of a literal coach or just a person that you trust and who's a great listener, I hope that if you do seek it out, you'll find some value in it as well. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our show is produced by Michaela Heck and Vishnu Vallabhanani. Our executive producer is Brian Henry, and our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Alan Haberchak is the director of audio at Morning Brew, and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. 